0: 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 we we started down this idea of just trying to understand some of the language that the Bible has that we don't use because it's a culture that we're we're not in and a great part of that culture that the Bible was written in written for written about is this sacrifice system that the Old Testament seems to have so much blood in it and God, of course, he did this for a reason. It was intentional, and it was designed so that in New Testament times, people, especially the the Jewish nation, they were supposed to be able to recognize that what Jesus' life was was a representation, a fulfillment of what they had been doing in their temple for centuries. A couple thousand years, that the animals that were being sacrificed in there even the way that the, the, the animal was sacrificed, it was supposed to have been seen in Jesus' life, They were supposed to be able to put two, to, two and two together. And Paul writes about this a lot in the New Testament. And we're going to just go through there in Hebrews chapter 9, but this verse in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, the second half of the verse, it says, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And in those words is the Jewish feast picture, their festival of the Passover. And we, when we first started this, we looked at how when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, that was the preparation of the Passover. That meant the entire nation was getting ready to kill their lamb. And Jesus was killed on that day. He was even killed on the same day that they were killing their lamb that they knew it represented cleansing of sin. The blood of that thing cleanses our sin. Christ, our Passover, that verse says is sacrifice for us. That last little phrase, for us, that means that you and I that live 2,000 years later, what Jesus did, what he accomplished on the cross, that was done for us. People in the Old Testament times, in Jesus' time, understood what sacrifice meant for them. But for it to be done for the people coming into the future, very new, because what they had to do was it came around every year, and you had to do it every year. What Jesus did for us was was perfect, and what we'll see tonight is it got us access into something that had previously been set apart, set out aside to where nobody, except one person, was ever allowed to go. Keep in mind this idea: the Passover of Jesus, it was sacrificed. For or specifically for us. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll just start wading our way through this. In Hebrews, the entire book, Paul talks about the office of the priesthood, and of course, that's just strange to us. We don't have a priest standing that is splattered in blood, that is sacrificing animals for us, but in the Bible, that's what a, when you hear the word priest, that's a picture you probably should have come up in your mind. The priest spent all of his working hours around animals being sacrificed. Now, there's going to be a lot of strange language in here. We'll try to stop and, you know, we, we've got 20 people in the room here, and we're not, we don't all have the, the same background. I have no idea for some of us if, uh, if you've been exposed to the idea of what was happen- what took place in the Old Testament. And whether you do or not, Paul writes in this language. So for a New Testament person, if you're going to read through your Bible and understand what the heck he's talking about sometimes, we really do have to stop, slow down, and reference what happened in the Old Testament. Because Paul paints the picture that what happened back then was for us. Even though we were never there, you've probably never sacrificed an animal. Hopefully. When I was a kid, there was this strange, they found strange things uh, over in the Beatrice area of cats and dogs that had had their blood drained from them and they ended up finding some kids who were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And so those things should, in our day, seem a little strange. But in the biblical times, God had them perform some of this stuff as a visual aid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances and divine service and a worldly sanctuary. First of all, When that verse says that the first covenant, before we even understand what that one is, that does imply what? If there was a first, it implies something came after it. There was a second, who knows, maybe a third, fourth, fifth. But we at least know, if you're pointing out that something was the first, that is making a distinguishing change of path, of direction, something new came after that. That's why we even called the First World War. We would not call it that if there hadn't been a second. We'd all just known it was the the Great War. But when 25 years later it started up again, it got the name the First World War. The First Covenant. What he's talking about is really got started back in Exodus when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He started with Moses up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights he was up there. And he talked a lot. He gave Moses not just the Ten Commandments. He did give him those things. The finger of God wrote in those stone tablets. But he also gave him a lot of things that Moses was supposed to remember what he saw up there. or just one phrase into this, but keep your finger right there. Go to Exodus 25. Exodus chapter 25. And this... We're going to just read the last verse in this chapter. The whole verse, or the whole chapter, is him up there receiving instructions that don't make any sense to Americans, because he's talking about how to make a certain candlestick, how to make a a certain table, an altar, these things that were supposed to be in the temple or in the sanctuary at this time. And verse forty, God says, Look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mountain. And God is simply reminding Moses, remember everything you see up here. Remember what you see up here. When you go down that mountain to these people, you make it after the pattern that you saw up here. Now It's important. We're really going to come full circle on what we just read there. Look at chapter 26, verse 30. Thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. That is Mount Sinai. These chapters are what people, we, we all skip through them because we don't have really a use for a tabernacle nowadays. All the instruments and the things that were contained in there we don't use anymore and it makes sense. We, before we go to bed at night, we don't read this. We just skip on to something that's a little more exciting. But the things that were in there, the only thing I want you to remember for tonight is God showed Moses something up there. And he told him several times, remember what you've seen up here. When you go down there, remember the pattern that you saw on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Now we skip forward several thousand years to Hebrews 9, and Paul is explaining this stuff. He's using as an example what Moses saw. Verily, the first covenant had these things it had ordinances, divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. So a worldly sanctuary means it wasn't in the heavens, it wasn't spiritual. It was physical stuff. There was a golden altar. There were the golden candlestick, the table of showbread. These things that really don't mean much to us, but they were physical. You could touch them. Somebody beat them out of a piece of gold. They fashioned them. Verse 2, There was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. What he's describing there is this tabernacle had several places of uh, access. What he just described there in the second verse is the tabernacle required a lot of priests because there was a lot of functions going on. And inside, when you first walked in, these things that are just named in verse 2, the ordinary priests, if that's what we can call them, did a lot of everyday service there. You remember John the Baptist's father? Anybody remember his how he's introduced to us? It tells us, John the Baptist's dad, He's in the temple in Jesus' time. He was a priest. And he's performing the things he's supposed to be performing. And what happens? An angel is standing there. And it says, even though you and um, Elizabeth haven't had any kids yet, you're going to have a son. He can't believe it. He's going to say something really dumb and the angel strikes him dumb. He can't talk until that kid is born. He was in there, in the temple. We know that his family, he was one of these priests. Chapter Verse 2 describes this area that a lot of the ordinary or the normal priests could do their daily service. We're going to get to something that's beyond what they could do. Verse 3 says, After the second veil, there was a second curtain or a door that led to the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So inside there, there's no external way to get in there. You first had to go into the main sanctuary, then there was one place, one small curtain, you could get into the holiest of all. And it says in verse 4, in there it had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones, that's what it's talking about. That movie, there's a reason it captures your imagination and your it gives us goosebumps. That movie is based on an actual idea. Not that everything in that movie by any means is biblical, but that thing did, does exist. The Ark of the Covenant, and I it deserves at least a couple minutes here. The Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God, because this is inside the holiest of the holy place, God told Moses, after you build this thing, my presence is going to be seen, experienced, experienced on top of that little box that you're making. That's where your high priest is going to come visit with me once a year. And there were special occasions where they went in there and they needed to know, God, should we really go attack these people that outnumber us? Should we pick up the tent and move And God would talk to them from that mercy seat or right on top of this Ark of the Covenant. And verse 4 tells us that inside that thing, it was overlaid with gold, but inside it had the golden pot of manna. Remember that story of the Children of Israel receiving the manna for 40 years in the wilderness? Well, when it came to an end, God told Moses, go out and get a little pot of it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. That for centuries, for thousands of years, they had a representation of what took place. Now, in normal times, that stuff always went bad. It rotted. You couldn't store it up for another day. But the miracle took place in that Ark. There was a sample of it for their generations to remind them, I I fed you guys in the wilderness for 40 years. Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Aaron's rod, that's when they were before Pharaoh. And Aaron had this rod that if he threw it down, it would turn into a snake. And the Egyptians, their magicians did the same thing, but Aaron's rod or his snake ate theirs. Anyway, after all these years, and this is this dead piece of wood that you're carrying around as a walking stick, that thing, God had this miracle once where it budded. It sent out shoots and it budded new growth. After all this time of being cut off, it was another miracle. And the tables of the covenant, those are the actual stone tablets that Moses brought down, put inside the Ark of the Covenant. The finger of God wrote these things. And that's what they had in the Ark of the Covenant. And in there, that was all put, that Ark of the Covenant, was in what, was the, what they called the holiest of all, the holy of holies. Verse 6. Uh, verse 5, it says... And over it, cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. The reason Paul can't speak particularly about it, in Paul's day, the Ark of the Covenant, 90% chance it was gone. It was not there. Not even the high priest could go in and see it. Because in their father's time, they had sinned for a great time and God brought the Babylonians to carry them off the land for 70 years as punishment. Well, when they saw that thing coming, uh, the, we'll just put it this way: the Ark of the Covenant's never mentioned after that. It lists all the the table, the the tables, the spoons, the the golden tongs, all these things that were taken. It does not mention the Ark of the Covenant. It was either destroyed, which I don't think is all that likely. It was hidden, possibly, whatever. We don't. It's not seen in there. When they come back from Babylon and they rebuild their city and their temple, they rebuild that stuff. But we're pretty sure that this Ark of the Covenant. In Jesus' time, it's probably not in there. See, in the Old Testament, in say Solomon's time. In some of the other judges' time, if the enemy came against them, if the Ark of the Covenant just kind of came out and the sunlight twinkled off the gold and sparkled in their direction, the enemy died. You remember the story, they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, God said, don't let anybody touch it. They had these poles that went through these rings on it. They were carrying it to a different place. The people carrying it stumbled and a very well-meaning guy reached out to steady it and he died. The Bible tells us God struck him down. And God doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, I'm sorry that I seem mean. He had told them, don't touch this. This thing represents his holiness, his presence. And mankind cannot touch that sucker. But the Ark of the Covenant, just a, a, a quick overview Any time in the Old Testament where the enemy did capture it or had possession of it, everybody where it had it had terrible diseases. So much so that they begged, take it out away from us. They even put it back on a cart with new oxen that had never even been broken. And they said, if there's a miracle, this thing takes it back to Israel, then God wants it there because we can't handle it here. Every place they moved around, and God has a sense of humor the diseases that show up where this thing went, very uncomfortable. We'll leave it at that. In verse 6, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. All that's saying is the first area, the priests went in there all the time. But verse 7 says, But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood. So there's a, Paul starts to make a distinction here. The priest went inside the, the normal sanctuary all the time. But that holiest of holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Think about this. Only one guy could go in there. And he had to be out of a special tribe. Out of a special nation. And how many times could he go? Once a year. And if he did go in there, he better not go in without blood. You see the restrictions that start piling up? You can The priest could go into the outer court, the this, this sanctuary area, all the time. But verse 7 says, look at the restrictions. One nation on earth, the Jews. One tribe, the Levites. One person out of that tribe, the high priest. And he could go in only once a year. If he left his phone in there, he could not go back in. He had to have blood when he went in there. Otherwise, he, he gets dragged out by a rope. He dies. And the whole point of that is, God did not allow access to His presence. It's it's what He starts to tell us here. Look at verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying. What's that mean? That means that what, what He has just described is painting a picture. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, as long as that first thing that Moses built, as long as that thing existed, as long as what has been described in the first eight verses here was taking place with the the priest sacrifice system, the Holy Ghost was signifying nobody gets into the presence of God in the holiest of holies. You don't go in there. Even the high priest can just barely get in there. And he's scared to death when he's in there. Paul is saying, this is a picture. Look at verse 9. This was a figure. That's New Testament Bible language for painting a picture, a shadow, an image. This all was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. What he's saying in that verse is even the priests that went in there and did all the things with the blood that represented cleansing, even those guys were still, they for sure weren't perfect. They might not even have been very righteous. And it for sure didn't help their conscience. But all of this was a picture, a figure for the time, as he says here, then present. Now, we've done the boring part for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Verse 11 says, But. That means we're going now in a different direction, or at least a comparison, a contrast. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come. Now it's painting Jesus as a, or the, high priest. See, this is for a Jewish audience. A Jewish man wrote this. When you say the word high priest to them, what do they picture? A guy in all that weird gown weird big hat on, he went into the Holy of Holies. That's what they mean by high priest. It's not what you and I may picture with somebody wearing black with a little white collar. That's not what they are picturing. It says that Jesus became this high priest. And what have we just read? The high priest, we we set him apart because he gets to go into the holiest, the Holy of Holies once a year. Now it's painting Jesus as that person this is getting a little strange. I thought he was the sacrifice that the priest took in there. Well, you're right. He was all of it. See, the sacrifice system that Jesus finished, it had to be perfect in every respect. The sacrifice had to be perfectly innocent. That's why he never sinned. The priest that carries it in there has to be perfect without sin. And Jesus was all parts of this. This is what Paul is pointing out. Christ has become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Wait a minute. A more perfect tabernacle. That means he's not going into the same place the Jewish high priest always went. He's drawing us a there's a divergence here. Jesus is a high priest by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Well, the one that the high priest went into, that was made with hands. Let's keep reading. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay. There's a lot of same phrases, same pictures in verse 11 and 12, but we know this. Jesus is, in this picture, the high priest. He, it says in verse 12, carried his own blood, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All right. We take our Bible literally. Unless it indicates that it's painting a picture, we take this sucker literally. That just told me that he took his own blood somewhere. My, my, my mind starts thinking, did, they, did, they, did he pull the nails out, come down from the cross, walk across the Kidron Valley, and take his blood into the temple there? I, no, we have no record. There's, we don't have record of Jesus going into the temple that either Solomon made, Herod made, Moses made. He didn't go into the earthly, as this verse says, made with hands but it clearly says he went into the holy place. So what is he talking about? Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, here it goes, the unclean sanctify to the puring of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to the living God? Okay. These verses clearly say that Jesus went somewhere. And it wasn't a, a defiled human being that had the sin nature of Adam in him. That type of person didn't take his blood somewhere and offer it. But he clearly went somewhere. If we need to save that. Uh, let, let's go. Look at verse Verse 23. Verse 23 says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now what he has just talked about in the previous ten verses or so is Moses sprinkling with blood all these things in the Old Testament. The things that Moses saw up on the mountain, a pattern, or he saw the, the, the original and he came down to make a pattern of what he saw up there. Verse 23 says, that because those things needed to have blood applied to them, that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified. What are the patterns of things in the heavens? The, that indicates something. That whatever the pattern is, it's a pattern of something found in heaven. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. See, that Jewish temple that got destroyed in Israel some 30 years after Jesus' time, Jesus did not go in that building. Let's see, we already know from back there in verse 11, 12, 13, he went somewhere and he offered his blood. For Christ, is, in verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. And what are those things? They are the figures of the true. But he has gone into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now we got some information here. Where did Jesus go with his own blood to offer on the altar? To make atonement for us. See, this is where we Americans, we go to sleep at this part of the teaching because we're just not used to doing anything with blood. But in biblical times, this was it. This gave those people some assurance that God's okay with me because an animal's blood has been shed for me and it's been put on the altar where God told me to put it. At least I have some assurance that maybe I'm his child. What we're discovering here Christ did not enter into the places made with hands or where human beings built them. Verse 24 says, he went into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God. And here's what we learned through these verses. Well, we read back there in Exodus where God brought Moses up to the mountain and he talked with him all that time, showed him, and he said, Remember what you see here. What was he seeing up there? It sure seems that God gave him a vision, a glimpse. He saw what was in heaven. And Moses made the patterns from what he saw up there. When he came down and he built this sanctuary with the Holy of Holies and these different structures inside that tabernacle, he had been shown a vision, a picture of what was in heaven. You get all the way to the New Testament and Jesus performs his sacrifice. And Paul starts to describe to us here that where Jesus went, he did take his blood just like the high priests do. Because this is the part, you, you cannot skip over this. God does not wink at sin. And he doesn't wave a, a special magic wand to say, uh, we'll just say that you people, we'll just say that you're better than the people in the Old Testament. He doesn't do that. He is legal. And he legally paid for it. For that to happen, for the legal requirements to be met, blood has to be on the altar. That's the image of the entire Bible. When you get all the way here to the toward the end of your Bible, Paul starts to describing verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. See, what that says is they're just the figures of the true. They're a picture of the true ones. But into heaven, Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that we've introduced something, and my intention is not to introduce something that just causes confusion or try to heaven forbid, cause you to doubt your Bible. That's not what we're trying to do. We want so that when you go home and you read your Bible and any part of it, you understand, you can follow where it's leading you. And we're Americans. We're not Jewish Old Testament people. But for us to understand, we've got to see how these things work, at least in our mind. Keep a finger there. Go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Let's see. John chapter 20, and this is where Jesus is resurrected in the first few verses. And when you get down to verse 11, Mary Magdalene is standing outside, outside the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and there are Verse 12, two angels in, their, in white sitting at the head and at the foot where Jesus had been lain. They say unto her, Woman, why do you weep? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Jesus then intervie- er, appears to her, When she had said this, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir... If you've borne him from hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus says unto her, Mary, when he says her name, she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni which is to say, Master. She then immediately recognizes him. Look at verse 17. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. Now, this is a little strange. There's never been a problem. You remember when... The night before Jesus died, there was the woman that broke this alabaster box of ointment. They rubbed it all over him and he said, Leave. The disciples said, That's worth too much money. What are you doing? And he said, It's for my burial. Leave her alone. People always touch Jesus. He laid hands on the sick. There was no problem with touching Jesus. Why in the world would he tell this woman who was seeing him the first time and her natural inclination is to fall at his feet, grab him by the ankles, kiss, weep on his feet like she has done before? she thought he was dead and he was and the resurrection she's one of the first to see this and he keeps her at arm's length touch me not and why for i am not yet ascended to my father see we just read past that because we don't really understand what he's saying we just think well, he's he's got an appointment somewhere he can't stand and chat he can't have tears on his feet wherever he gets where he's going that's not why. He says here in our Bible, don't touch me because I have not yet, meaning I'm going to, I haven't done it yet, I've not ascended to the Father. What did we just read in Hebrews? That Paul tells us that Jesus did take his blood somewhere. and In fact, he went into the original, the places that you priests down here on the earth, take your blood, that's a figure, that's a picture not the true, it's a pattern of the heavenly things. Jesus is going to take his blood to the heavenly original mercy seat and apply the blood there. and then John you're you're kind of stretching that it doesn't It, it doesn't really say that. Well, there is something about this. Mary, one of the first ones, he says, "Don't touch me." Now you know how this story continues. He tells Mary, You go and tell my disciples that I've been resurrected and I will see them. In when she does that, there, some of the disciples there, they hear that, they think, this, they're, these people are just telling idle tales. And in verse uh, 19, Jesus appears to them, it says, The same day at evening, all the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear, so now they're all together came Jesus, stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. And, verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. He was not there. He hasn't yet to see Jesus with his own eyes. And we know this guy today as Doubting Thomas. Why? As we keep reading here, Thomas says, I, I know what you guys are saying, and you've got sparkles in your eyes, and you guys are out of breath telling me this, but I saw him die. And I saw them put the spear in his side. I saw him give up the ghost. Until I touch my hands, to the holes in his hands and the, side in his, uh, the hole in his side, I will not believe. That's why we to this day call him Doubting, Doubting Thomas. He doubted the resurrection. When Jesus does come, let's see, verse 26, and after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then he saith to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, that sounds like touching. He had told Mary Magdalene at the tomb, don't touch me, for I have not yet been to my Father. And here's the picture in in this chapter. When he is first resurrected, he is like that priest, uh, the high priest. Before he went into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, he didn't dare touch anything that was considered "quote unclean, sinful, anything that might make him or even have a hint of sin or uncleanness, ceremonial or otherwise. Because going in there in God's presence you had to be perfect. That's the picture. He is resurrected at that tomb but he is not yet, as he said in his own words, he, he has not been to the Father The next part of this chapter says that after eight days, he has already appeared to the disciples, but he's coming eight days later because Thomas wasn't there. And this time he tells Thomas, put your hands in there and feel the hole. Put your hand in my side where the spear was. He asked Thomas to touch him. And something has happened. Something between him being raised from the dead and the eight days later when Thomas is there, something has taken place. Jesus kept them at arm's length. But now that he has, presumably, as he said, has went to the Father, everything is just dandy. And even to the point where he comes here and he is one of them again, or at least he he has his resurrected body. If he were to be cut in any way, I'm pretty sure that no blood comes out because where is that blood? It's been offered on the altar. His resurrected body is never going to die again. He doesn't need blood coursing through his veins. That blood's been offered somewhere for a legal price. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, and look at verse 23 again. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens... Should be purified with these, and that's talking about the the bulls, the goats, the lambs on earth. the the patterns on The patterns of the true are the ones that are on earth. They are a pattern of what's in heaven. In verse, uh, let's see, keep reading verse twenty-three. But the heavenly things themselves, they had to be purified with better sacrifices than these, and because of that, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, when you just start to dissect and pull the language apart, there is one that's a true, and there's a pattern of the true. The patterns are what Moses made down here on the earth. And the true, or the original, is that stuff that's in heaven. And Jesus went there with his blood, now think about this. He went into the presence of God to purify something. That's what this whole chapter is describing. The reason blood was ever shed wasn't for kicks and giggles. It wasn't because we needed something to eat and we are going to eat that animal. It was for the blood that makes atonement for sin. That's the, you know, the whole Bible is basically built on that principle. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did God do? tells us they realize, oh my God, we're naked. And what did he do? It says he took coats of animal skins and covered them. Even there, the very first sin, it's a picture of, those animals didn't just unzip and voluntarily hand their skins over. They were sacrificed. They were killed. They were innocent. And it's a picture from the very first sin. What has to take place? Blood. They were clothed probably with bloody animal skins. Blood, it covers sin. From the very first sin, it's the picture in the Bible. And you get all the way here and we have our Savior taking blood somewhere. He, he went into heaven. Now, it's not all that important that we understand that what Moses made on the earth here was a picture of what he saw in heaven. The most important thing out of all this, the last two words in verse 24, for us. He went to heaven purified, sanctified, met the requirements of the blood sacrifice for his blood, sacrifice for us. I've never sacrificed an animal in my life. Hunted, killed things, eaten them. But I didn't do that to try to make atonement for my sin. And if I did try to do that now, that would be blasphemous because I'd be saying that, well, even though he did it for me, it wasn't good enough. That's why we don't do it. But think of this. In the presence of God, there is the blood of the Savior that has been shed for us. What do you think of when you go to God in prayer? When you need something from the Lord and you finally decide, I, I put it off, but okay, I'm going I'm to take this to, to the Lord. Do, do, do the thoughts come to your mind? Well, he, he probably doesn't want to listen to somebody like me. I, I haven't been the best this, the best that. When I was 16, I did something really stupid. Do those things come to your mind? Because what you're learning here is Jesus' blood has so purified you, if you've applied it to yourself, that you now have access, not in that Holy of Holies down here on earth where even the no humans could go, but just the high priest once a year. Where can you now go? you can go to the throne of the father and the bible teaches us that let's go to hebrews we're in hebrews go to chapter 4 verse 16 hebrews 4:16 this he the previous verses are talking about jesus as a high priest hebrews 4:16 and because of that let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does that paint a picture of the Christian crawling on hands and knees, shaking in fear to go approach your Father? It doesn't. I do not want to diminish what we call the fear of the Lord. Not at all. I want to paint the picture of confidence, of access when you need something from the Father. We can come boldly unto the throne. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of what Jesus taught in the Gospels when he was talking about prayer. And he was talking about an importunate woman who needed something from a judge. And she would not stop knocking on his door at three in the morning. She would not stop knocking. And that parable, that uh, passage, Jesus says, the judge, he says, even though she's not not the most important citizen in town, I don't even necessarily know her. She's not a person of influence. There's nothing she's going to do for me, but because I know she's out there and she expects something and she's not going to give up, he goes to the door and answers her. That's a picture of a person in prayer coming boldly to the throne of grace. Let's read that again. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we go to our Father in prayer, we we do have a very holy fear of Him. But we also, now because of what Jesus has done for us, we know we at least belong. You are an adopted child. You're You're not born of His blood. We all come from Adam and Eve. Blood. but The Bible does use the language of adoption all through the New Testament. And you know what adoption is? It's legal. In the eyes of the Law. It is perfectly legal. What's the law in Bible terms? It's the Ten Commandments. You may have broken every single one of them. But if the blood of Jesus has been applied to your life, you legally are just like Jesus. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16. The previous verses are talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16 that he might in the dying on the cross he did so that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereof. He's talking about the commandments the ordinances the law that the Old Testament required. These verses are saying Jesus took both that law and his blood he reconciled us to God verse 17 he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh for through him we both have access access by one spirit unto city hall the mayor's office the governor's Supreme Court judge the president those those would be nice wouldn't they this Higher than that. You have access to the Father because of his blood. When Jesus took that blood to heaven, there is now a yellow brick road that leads from wherever you're at all the way to God's throne so that you have access. You know what that should do to us when we pray? We should go in there a little bit more like what Jesus talked about, how a child goes to his father. And I can tell you, my children, when they know they belong, and they know that what's in that refrigerator is basically theirs, they don't come crawling in. They come boldly to ask. Sometimes they don't even do that. And, and what's the image of that? They know they belong. There's a legal stipulation and assumption that I belong here. I'm not scared to go and ask mom and dad about this stuff. And this is the image. It doesn't mean that God isn't holy, and it doesn't mean that he has overlooked sin. He has not. The whole idea is that he has paid for it. That's why there is God went to such lengths to make sure that Jesus died just like the lamb, that the blood was applied to the same place that the lamb's blood had to be applied to, only not in the temple made with hands, in the temple where? In heaven. He appeared in heaven, for us, it not only should change the way we pray, it should change how often we approach that throne. Can you imagine that? Look at the picture that's painted for us. As long as that blood is applied to you, you are an adopted child. You carry those papers with you, you're legal. And you have the legal right in your prayer to go to God with some confidence. <coughs> He paints that, read in your Bible, do a home Bible study on prayer and approaching God. He uses language like, come into my presence with thanksgiving, praise, joy. It's a picture of a little kid just skipping, chewing gum almost. That's a little, that's, that's overdoing a little, but it paints the picture of you go in there with, I'm gonna go see dad today. It's not the picture of somebody who doesn't have that blood applied to them. That is a totally different picture. And it paints this idea of it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. What the New Testament Christian needs to understand about these images and these pictures of sacrificing and blood that seems so strange to us, here's what we have to understand about that. It was God's way of telling all humanity, People in China, Mongolia, Africa, Asia, America, paint the picture of if there's blood shed for you, you're fine. Everybody has to apply that to themselves. That's why God does this all on faith. If you see his story and you believe it, you can't go and physically dip your finger into the wet blood of Jesus somewhere and make a cross on your heart. It's by faith. We accept by faith what we hear about this story that God painted for us. Do I really think he died for me? And if you have guts enough to accept that, there's something that happens in heaven in your account. There is a legal transition. That's my kid now. The Bible paints this picture of us having the access, and that's what Ephesians 2.18, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Look at verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. You belong in his house. You belong in his house. Legally. The Bible has a lot of legal language in it. And I, I'm convinced it's why a lot of people fall asleep reading the Bible. The same thing with lawyers, judges. There are people that sit on the edge of their seats in most courtrooms. They're, they usually have, are, are fighting to stay awake unless their life is on the line. Because it's language that we don't understand, usually. God did it in the simplest way, it seems, that all cultures could understand. This animal that's never done anything, it doesn't probably even know what sin is, painted a picture of when that thing was sacrificed and the blood was caught, he was a substitute substitute for us. And he worked that thing through thousands of years until Jesus came. And he painted every time the Bible talks about Jesus, it puts it in this language, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. That from the very beginning, God had this plan, this idea. I know they're going to sin. They're going to screw up, but God seems to have loved his plan so much he wanted just to see this thing go forward. He loves it. And any time a human being sees that plan and accepts what his son did, and is willing to repent, turn their life to him, there is a legal adoption that takes place. There's several epistles that deal with that language all the time, talking about the Jewish people who had a physical inheritance, and how were they were the sons of Abraham. And when it gets to us, it says that if we simply believe the story of Jesus, we're grafted into that thing, and we are the seed of Abraham. We're actually, you're a heck of a lot closer to God if you have the blood of Jesus applied to you than if you have just Jewish blood. That's the whole, the whole idea of the New Testament. It's split there. Because the Jewish blood wasn't good enough. Those people, every time they talked to Jesus, what was their defense? I mean, we know where our parents came. I can trace it back to Abraham. We're, we're Abraham's kids. and There was nothing wrong with that. But Abraham's kids should have been able to see more than anybody the death of this lamb paying for their sin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the images that are contained in your word and we pray that each one of us would have a better understanding every day of your plan, how it applies to us, and what has been paid for us. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. And we pray, Lord, that as the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, that we would become bolder in our walk with you, that we might be able to reach more for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.